Amen. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And can we just say thank you to the team just for leading us this morning? Um, I also just want to say thank you to all the guys back in the booth. Uh, there's been so much that's been happening to get all of this back to normal over the last few weeks. And a lot of sacrifice has gone into uh, trying to get ready for this morning so that we can see God clearly without distraction. So thank you guys for everything that you've done uh, to make that possible. And I'm just overwhelmed a little bit even just sitting there singing with you, listening to you sing, just at the gift of what these moments are where we gather together. And that's actually what we're going to be talking about this morning, the gathering. Uh, and you might be here thinking, okay, well, we're here at the gathering. Shouldn't all the people not here be the ones hearing this message? And maybe so. You can send them the podcast or something like that. Uh, but my hope this morning is we're going to come around this core practice of ours. This, we are called to gather. It's an overflow of our abiding relationship with Jesus. And to see just how beautiful and good this gift of God is to us called the gathering. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn over to the book of Ezra. Uh, I don't know if you've spent much time in the book of Ezra, but it's, it's an awesome book. And so if you kind of get to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and then boom, you land at Ezra. And Ezra is, it picks up right where 2 Chronicles leaves off kind of in the history of Israel. Uh, and in Second Chronicles, end of it, the children of Israel are being sent out into exile. They've been captured by a foreign land because of all their disobedience. God has sent them into captivity. Uh, and then in Ezra, we begin to read about the return. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful narrative of Scripture that helps us understand uh, who we are. And we're going to be looking at that this morning together. So Ezra chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We're going to be talking about the practice gather and this is the identity statement that goes along with gather that, that we say a lot around here because we exist for him Jesus followers gather with one another to worship because we exist for him Jesus followers gather with one another to worship we exist for God we exist for Jesus and so we gather together with one another not just other random people one another's really important language the body of Christ gathers together. And we do that to worship. Not for worship, so we don't spend all our lives kind of doing our own thing, then we come for worship on Sunday morning. We come as worshipers who've been worshiping God all week long to the gathering so that we can worship Him together. And so we're going to look at what that means and why that's significant. And so I was kind of preparing this morning I was thinking about how some uh, gatherings in my past experience have been more impactful than others. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Uh, for those of you who are here and you're not a believer, you're just kind of checking things out, you're interested, uh, you're going to hear a lot that I would just encourage you to think about, ask questions about. I'm going to say a lot of things that ask our people to do a lot of things that you don't have to do. Pressure's off. You can just kind of take it all in. But for those of us who've been around the church for a while and uh, I was going to church nine months before I was born. That was just kind of our family's uh, thing. Dad's a pastor, and so we were always here if the doors of the church are open. I've been a part of a lot of gatherings uh, over the course of my 32 years of life. And I can look back. There's some that were more transformative than others in the moment. Um, I can even remember when I was in high school being a part of a gathering where uh, the, the pastor preached from the book of Ezekiel 
And I don't even know if a high schooler, I knew whether or not the book of Ezekiel existed in the Bible. Uh, and even if I did, I hadn't probably spent any time in it. And as he was unpacked the truth of the word, God's sovereignty and his goodness and his grace from Ezekiel, it just opened my mind and my heart to see the God of the Bible in a way I never had before. And the beauty of scripture in the way I never had before. And I can remember that today. And that was over 20 years ago. Maybe not 20. My math's not too good. Over 15 years ago. Uh, and so I, I'm sure some of you have had some of those moments too. Um, just group participation. I know introverts, we hate this, but you can humor me. How many of you have had a moment like that? You've been a part of a worship gathering and God just did something special in your life. Anybody in here transformative? Okay, several of you, 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 you recognize that. All right, here's the other really important question. How many of you have been a part of a worship gathering that was kind of mundane, boring, maybe waste of time, really didn't feel like it moved much spiritually at all? Anybody in here? Man, there's a lot more hands for that one. Okay. So here's the really important question. How many of you think that this gathering is going to be one of the transformational ones, life-changing ones? And how many of you think there's probably a good chance it's going to be one of the more mundane? And Okay, not that many hands. That's good. We're in good shape, all right? That's awesome. Thank you for uh, not torturing me. That's very gracious of you. Here's, here's the question I want to think about. We are commanded to gather as the people of God. Since the early church, since Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the church has been gathering every single week. In fact, in Acts 2, they were gathering under the apostles' teaching day by day. This is not a new thing. Around the world today, Christians gather. So what makes some moments more transformational than others? Why does it seem that the Holy Spirit kind of awakens our hearts some more than others? And I'm not talking about because the preaching's heretical or anything like that. I'm setting that to the side. And I think the really key question that we have to ask ourselves, and this is the one that I've been thinking through for my own heart, is could it be that the reason why we see God move uniquely at some points within a gathering versus others has less to do with what's happening in that gathering and has a lot more to do with our hearts as we come into the gathering? that makes sense? Maybe the reason why we don't see God in his word as beautiful is because we come in with hearts who aren't, that aren't adoring God and Christ as beautiful. Maybe in those unique moments, there were moments where God had already captured our affections and we're coming in experiencing and, and worshiping and living that out, whereas a lot of other times... Can we just be really honest? I'll be really honest. It's easy for me to come in on Sunday morning really distracted. Hearts going a million different ways. The kids are going two million different ways. All those kind of things. And what I want us to, to see this morning as we look from the book of Ezra is that the gathering is not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. The gathering is it's a gift. It's a unique, special moment. For a Jesus follower. And every single moment we gather, it's, it's a miracle. I think the question is to do more with our hearts. And so 
when we come to the book of Ezra, we see a worship gathering. In fact, it's the first major one at the temple once the people return from exile. And I think it has a lot to teach us about what we do when we gather as Jesus' followers today. So if you would, with me, read the word of God. We're going to start in Ezra chapter 1 together, and we'll jump over to chapter 3. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and put it into writing. Cyrus is, is not a God worshiper. He worships multiple gods. He's a pagan king. And he is over and ruling over the known world at this time. Greatest superpower in the world. The small little nation of Israel's in Persia. And God steps into this king's life and speaks to him. And this is what happens. Verse 2. Thus says king Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Which is an amazing statement. Even in this moment, Cyrus, who he's a worshiper of many deities, he, he recognizes that there is one God. And that God is Yahweh. It's Jehovah that we were singing about earlier. He is the God of heaven and that everything Cyrus has, he, he realizes it's not his, it was given to him. He has charged me to build him a house. Second Samuel 7 language in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. and Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And this is kind of a unique thing that's happening. This is what happened to Exodus too. When Pharaoh finally released God's children out of Egypt, he tells all the other Egyptians, give them silver, give them gold. They, they plunder the Egyptians. This uh, exodus happening over again. Verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites. This is the key phrase. Everyone whose spirit God stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord's in Jerusalem. So God's stirring the spirit of the king, but God's also stirring the spirit of his people. And let's jump over to chapter 3. So the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2 is this group of people moving to, back to Jerusalem, back to Judea. Two years later, because it's a long journey, there's a lot that's happening there. They've left their homes, they're back in their homeland. We're going to start in verse 8. Now in the second year after the coming to the house of God, Jerusalem, the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezodak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. If you're looking for any good uh, male baby names, there's some the real gems right there. Really unique, special, stand out. Zerubbabel would be awesome. Really, really good. Uh, he's actually a really cool guy. We'll keep going. Verse 9. And Jeshua, with all his sons and his brothers, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad, the Levites, and their sons and brothers. Verse 10, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord. They gather. 
according to the direction of the King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. This is all throughout the Psalms toward Israel. And look at what happens next. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the head of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, the first temple before it was torn down, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. It's the word of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I've not been a part of very many worship gatherings when the sound of the shouting and the sound of the weeping was heard from far away. And when the sound of the shouting and the sound of the weeping was so loud, you couldn't really tell which was which. So needless to say, this was a very, very significant moment in the history of Israel. It had been, at this point, 50 years since God's people had been taken out of their homeland, into captivity, into bondage, to live under a pagan king. All the things that are happening in the story of Esther, the story of Daniel, are taking place during kind of this time period. Some of it happens after. So just a, a real uh, pagan place that they've been in because of their sin. They disobey God, they rejected God, they were punished, sent into exile. And then God in his sovereign grace bringing his people back. And they have this worship gathering together. And what we see from this passage and what I want you to take this morning are our big truth that, that I want us to kind of wrestle through and I pray that just kind of leans into your heart is this idea, this truth that the gathering is a gift. The gathering, what we're doing right now the gathering of God's people for worship to adore Christ the Lord is a gift. These people had not been able to do that in the way that they're doing it now. And that's a part of why their response is the way that it is. That this, what we get to be a part of, is a massive gift from God to us that we don't deserve. And so... What I want to do this morning in the time that we have left is, is ask and answer three questions about the gathering. One question is, why should we gather? If we can worship God individually, why, why should we gather together to worship? Secondly, kind of even more base level question is, what is worship? We'll be kind of limited in what we can get into on that one. And then lastly, what should we do when we, what should happen when we gather? When we gather together, what should be taking place? And what is our responsibility in that moment? And my prayer is that, that we would see the gift that the gathering is. So let's take on the first question. Why should we gather to worship? And the answer is this. We gather because God's glory is the aim of the church. We gather together because God's glory is the aim of the church. If you have your Bibles still out in chapter 3, look at verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with the trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, 
wrote many of the songs with sim- psalms with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. Why did they do what they were doing? They did it to praise the Lord. That's what they're doing. That's why they're gathering. They are gathering to praise the Lord. The reason why we gather is the glory of God. The aim of the church is the glory of God. So we gather together to lift up that name. All throughout the first chapter we read, we see God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace in going to this pagan king and turning his heart to his people. God's sovereign grace in stirring a people in their spirit, pulling them out. And listen guys, it would have been a hard thing to be exiled, but it's not an easy thing to live somewhere for 50 years, make a home, make your family, make your living, and then have to come back to a place where you don't even know what's going to be there when you get back. God's sovereign grace of calling the people out and then we see their response and their response to God's sovereign grace in acting in Cyrus's life and acting on their people is to gather together to worship we come here and one of the reasons why the gathering is so important is we can worship on our own out there kind of in our own lives and we should we should abide in Christ personally but when we come here we are coming to abide in worship with all the other believers who are part of our family who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. God is worthy of our worship. Amen? God is worthy of our gathering. God is worthy of our worship. We don't come for ourselves. We come for Him. We don't come because we like this preacher or we like that music or we like that coffee or we want to feel good about ourselves because that's the religious spiritual thing to do. No, we come for the glory of God because he's worthy of the praises of his people. And this is what we will do for all eternity when Jesus comes back again is we will gather as God's people and worship and adore our king. So we gather because God's glory is the aim of the church. And all throughout this passage, is there's, there's hints of God's work and God's story and God's glory on display. And I wish I had time to chase it all. But so much of Ezra chapter 1 is Exodus language. That just like God pulled his people out of Egypt, he delivered them out of Egypt, now he's delivering them out of Persia. Just like there was a king, Pharaoh, who God hardened his heart. Now God is going to another king and softening his heart. Just like God provided for the Israelites by all the Egyptians giving of their livestock and gold and goods. Now all the people of Persia are giving of their goods so that the people of God can come back and worship rightly. It's pointing back to God's redemptive purposes. Even this... Uh, this command to make a house for God, it reflects the language that, that God and David have in 2 Samuel 7. God want, David wants to build God a house, but instead God says, David, I'm going to build you a house, and one of your sons is going to sit on everlasting throne. And this house language is reminding the people of Israel, it's reminding us that God is building his kingdom. Amen? With or without us, he is building his kingdom, that he is in charge, he is the ruler. Then you get in chapter 3 in verse 8 and it talks about these guys coming together, Zerubbabel and Yeshua and all these. And it has, there's a real key verse or phrase here. It says, they made a beginning together. And that word beginning, it literally means made a genesis together. 
It's the exact same word at the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the exact same word found in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And it's pointing us to remember God's created purposes. Then when we get to the Gospels, when we get to John, it's pointing us back to books like Ezra, reminding us of God's purpose and His sovereign grace in uniting a people for His worship. And so all of Scripture is this story of God bringing a people together for His own possession. And so we gather as His people to glorify Him. That's why we gather to worship. Second question, what is worship? I wish we had a lot of time to dive in here. If, if you have the app, uh, you can download the notes. I've put kind of a section on worship in there with passages and some truths about what worship is. And so if you want to do some more personal study, it's there for you. But I think it's helpful to have a definition here. And so this is our second big idea. Worship is our mind's attention and our heart's affection set on something or someone. Our mind's attention our heart's affection set on something or someone. Look at chapter 3, verse uh, 1. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their towns. This is really important. It says, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. They gathered as one man. Mind's attention, heart's affection, all the people, not multiple people, all the people, they came as one. This is what worship is. It's when we are solely focused, our heart and our mind, on something or someone. And that something or someone is meant to be God. It's what we were created for. And so this is really important for all of us in the room. Everyone who's in this room is a worshiper. You're a worshiper. The person to your left is a worshiper. The person to your right is a worshiper. You can turn to them and say, you're a worshiper. Thank you for the five of you did that. That's awesome. You are. You are a worshiper. So we don't come to church for worship. Worship is not something we do in a place on Sunday morning. Worship is our lifestyle. We were created to be worshipers. Everyone worships all the time. Worship is giving worth or weight to something or someone. Every person coming into this room this morning came in worshiping someone or something. You had something on your mind, something on your heart, something that you are wanting to give your energy and time and effort to. That's what we worship. There's a guy named Harold Best. He's a theologian. He says it this way. Worship never stops. It only changes directions. Worship never stops. It only changes directions. And the problem with human beings is that our hearts are constantly bent toward ourselves. And so one of the purposes of the gathering is we come in to sit under the word of God being sung and preached and prayed and witnessed so that we can turn our affections and our attention back to God, which is our purpose. How do I know it's our purpose? Because Jesus told us as it was. When asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, and this is what he said. In Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is what worship is. All of us solely devoted on God. This is what the gathering calls us to. It calls us to see our sin, see the other things that we're worshiping that are dividing our heart's affections and turn them back to God. I see this in my kids all the time. Um, 
we are very selfish people. My kids are very selfish children because their dad's a very selfish dad. So we'll just be honest and get that out there. But even the other day, Camden and Tripp, they're fighting, and one of them has literally about 12 cars, so many that he cannot get them in his hands, like they're falling out. There's no way he can play with them. He has way too many. But he's trying to hold all of them so that his brother can't get one of them. Anybody ever have that happen around your house? Okay, a few of you. And you're just like, how selfish? You can't even play with them. You're so busy trying to hold your own. But we do that all the time, right? We hoard our resources, we hoard our stuff, we fight for our comfort. We like things our way. Even in church, we like things our way. Worship, God-centered worship, is about focusing our minds, attention, our hearts, affection on the Lord. And gathering helps us do that. And so there's, there's more in your notes if you want to kind of look into, okay, what is that? How do I do that? I want to get to the last question. I want us to kind of camp here. What should happen when we gather with one another for worship? So we said, why do we worship? What is worship? What should happen when we come into this place? And there's, there's three key big ideas. The first one might seem obvious, uh, but it's important for us to talk about. And it's this. When we gather, together we worship. Together we worship. One of the things that we do when we gather is we worship. That's why we spend so much time talking about worship. Like That's what we are called to do. That's what the gathering is about. And I want to get really practical here. And as I get practical, I might say something that's a little offensive. And if I do, I'm sorry. Feel free to email me, mlauren at tcbchurch.org. And I will be glad to receive your complaints and if you can't spell it's like laugh run you put those two together and that's how you get there and we'll get back to you Uh, so we gather for worship well how do we do that what does that look like how do we worship one of the ways we worship practically and intentionally here as a church families we center our services around the word we pray the word we preach the word we read the word we sing the word these songs that we've been singing they're taken out of scripture we witness the word we'll be talking about this more next week through the lord's supper and baptism we see the gospel on display so one of the ways that we worship is we come here and not just watch these things happen but we should come submit ourselves to what's taking place what the word is calling us to do another uh, way that we do this and i just want to give some healthy marks of worship so this is just really practical what are some healthy marks of worship that all of us should participate in when we come into this place the first one is this our worship should be god-centered and not self-centered our worship when we come into this place together to gather together should be god-centered not self-centered it's about him it's not about us it's about his glory not about our comfort So really practically, one way we make it about God, not ourselves, is we lay down our preferences. We lay down our preferences. You might love the kind of music we do. You may not be a fan of all of it. We lay that down if it's honoring to God. You might love the fact that we have a preaching team and so you don't get the same pastor every single week delivering the word. You might not like that. We lay that down. You might love the way we do kids ministry. You may not. We lay that down. We lay down our preferences so that God can be glorified and magnified. And that's hard sometimes. 
Katie and I have had conversations often how um, we love the Chandlers and just how faithful they've been a part of this church and all the changes and culture and music style and all that kind of stuff. And we joke around like, I hope one day when I'm uh, in my 70s and 80s and like all the hymns are in hip hop and dubstep, you know, it's going on. Like I can still worship and be engaged and, and not fight for my own thing. And so we lay down our preferences. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the church is not perfect. Amen? Anybody recognize that? Listen to this. Woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. Woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. Listen to this. Christ loved his church. Let us do the same. I have no doubt that the Lord can see more fault in his church than I can. And I have equal confidence that he sees no fault at all. Because he covers her faults with his own love. That love which covers a multitude of sins and he removes all of her defilement with the precious blood which washes away all the transgressions of his people. Amen. When God looks at his bride, he doesn't see her faults. He sees the blood of his son. May we do the same. When we lay down our preferences, we do the same. Here's another just really practical way you can make the worship gathering for you God-centered instead of self-centered, and that's prioritizing the gathering in your weekly schedule. Even more clear, build your week around the worship gathering. Prioritize your vacation around being with the people of God. This is where I'm starting to step on toes, I know. Prioritize your work, your kids' travel ball, around gathering to worship God, who is ultimate. The family, it's a priority. Work is a priority. Friends are a priority. But friends, they're lesser priority than the gathering. Because God is ultimate. This blood-bought family will endure for all eternity. All those other things will not. Even my wife, who I love, and my kids, who I love dearly, I will not be her husband and their father for all eternity. But I will be her sister. I will be your brother for all eternity. And so we build our lives and our weekly schedule around the gathering, not for an event, not because it's church, not out of religious duty, but out of delight to praise our King. Again, just email mlauren at tcbchurch.org. All right, let's move to the second practice really quickly. Healthy mark of worship. Our worship should be participatory, not disengaged. Participatory, not disengaged. If, if you read in verse 10, it says, They sang responsively. They all shouted with a loud shout. All the people were weeping and shouting. Everyone was involved in the worship gathering. Not just kind of sitting and listening and watching. No, they were all engaged. Brothers and sisters, we come to the worship gathering. We come to be a part of the family. It's not a spectator sport. And I know we're Southern Baptist Church, and that's hard for a lot of us. But we come to be a part of the family. Don't come to the gathering for worship. Come worshiping to the gathering. Do you understand the difference? Prepare your heart. Pray. Come with anticipation. Come with expectation. Come ready to give. 
Pray for your brothers and sisters who are going to be gathering with you in the morning. Pray for your children who are going to be experiencing the gospel being preached. Pray for your spouse. Pray for one another. Pray for your friends. Come ready to receive, expecting to see God move. Examine your heart. Look at sin in your life. Set aside the time to be here early so you're not a distraction to other people who are worshiping because you come in late. Set aside the time to be here both hours so you can serve in nursery and let someone else participate in the gathering who otherwise may not get to. Participate. Serve the body. Serve one another. Come to worship. Here's a third one. Our worship should be unified, not individualistic. We've talked some about this already, but we don't come as individuals to the gathering. We come as a people to the gathering. Revelation 5, this picture of eternity. People from every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity, every language, all the peoples of the world, all gathered, united by the blood of Jesus in one family, together forever, singing praise to their king. We come here as a family to worship our king together. Think about a family reunion. Wouldn't it be a really weird thing if you were going to throw a family reunion but not invite any family members to come? Some of you, that might be your dream family reunion. Like, we're having a family reunion. None of you guys are invited. Like, yes, all the sweet potatoes to myself, whatever your thing is. That would be strange, right? A family reunion is for the family. Brothers and sisters, it would be strange for us to come to a gathering of the family of God and just be isolated by ourselves, come in and go out and it just be about us. Because we come to a family gathering. And there's a lot more scripture that's there. You can chase some of those passages. I would encourage you to. So together we worship. Secondly, together we sacrifice. So when we gather, we worship. Secondly, we sacrifice. We didn't read this verse earlier, but Ezra 2 Verse 69 says this, According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work. And then it talks about what they gave. Gold, money, clothing, livestock. In fact, the cost for the children of Israel to come to this moment of worship to gather was enormous. They had to leave their homes in this foreign land. They had to make a treacherous journey, which would have been expensive and difficult. They had to help in the work. They had to give so much of themselves to get to this moment of weeping and rejoicing we read about. It would have been an amazing amount of sacrifice. And there's enemies all around. If you read through the rest of the book of Ezra, in the next chapter, the enemies start pressing in to stop the work. Great sacrifice, great cost. Brothers and sisters, worship is not possible apart from sacrifice. Why? Because our worship is not possible apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament is built on a sacrificial system. And in the New Testament we see there is one sacrificial lamb who lays down his life for us. So when we gather, we gather to bring a sacrifice of praise. The Apostle Paul, Romans 12, 1, says it this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship involves sacrifice. 
Well, how do we sacrifice? Really practically, what does that look like? We sacrifice our time. We make the gathering our priority. We build our morning around it. We sacrifice our energy. We come and don't just sit and participate. We serve those around us. We talk to people. We pray for people. We love on people. We encourage people. We weep with our brothers and sisters who are weeping. We, we give of our money, our financial resources that we've been called to steward back for the sake of the gospel, for the advancement of the gospel. What is the sacrifice of praise that you brought this morning? The ultimate sacrifice is coming back every single Sunday and laying down your life on the altar, saying, Jesus, I give my life to you. I give my week to you. I give my school to you. I give my spouse to you. I give my children to you. I'm not just going to pray for their health, wealth, and happiness. I'm going to pray that they'd be arrows shot out for the glory of God because he's worthy of their lives. God, I give you my life again this week today. Forgive me for all the ways I've tried to steal it back, but today I give it back to you. Use it for your glory. The gathering calls us to sacrifice. Thirdly, the gathering, this is last, calls us to remember and rejoice. When we gather together, we remember and we rejoice. We remember and we rejoice. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3 paint this picture of weeping and shouting. Why weeping? It talks about the, the older men. They had seen the original temple. They had been a part of the land when the Persians came or the Babylonians came, the Assyrians came. They saw their sin. They saw God's wrath. They saw the punishment. And so now that they're back in this moment, they're remembering what was lost. They're remembering their sin. They're remembering what was broken. And they're weeping in repentance. Brothers and sisters, when we gather, part of our gathering is to repent. It's to turn from sin and turn to Christ. But there's also great rejoicing, celebration at what God has done. Celebration that he has delivered them, that he has brought them back out of exile into this place. The temple's being rebuilt. And so that's why there's weeping and shouting and weeping and shouting. It's so loud you could hear it for miles around because the people are just overwhelmed with the brokenness of their sin and the goodness of God. And part of our response when we come to gather as God's people is to remember and to rejoice. And maybe as we're going through this passage, because this was my thought reading this text, maybe you, you kind of are reading this along with me and you think, man, that, it's a cool narrative, but I don't see how that context applies to our context. How what happened thousands of years ago before Jesus came has anything to do with how we gather today. I mean, it's not like we were in captivity and bondage, unable to rescue ourselves. And God, in His sovereign grace and mercy, stepped in and set us free. Or is it? See, this is not just their story, friends. This is our story. 
We were on the other side of captivity. We were on the other side of bondage. We sold ourselves out because of our sins. We rejected God under his wrath fully and completely. And in God's mercy and grace, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our captivity, to save us from our bondage, to bring us out into light, to raise us back to life. This is why we gather We gather to celebrate the cross. We gather to celebrate God's goodness. We gather to celebrate that we have been made free by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is not something ordinary or small. This should captivate our hearts. The gathering is a gift because it reminds us every single week we gather who we were and what God did. And for all eternity... For those who are in Christ Jesus, we will gather and celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who rescued a people out of sin and bondage and brought them into freedom. This is why we gather. This is our story. This is your story. This is my story. And we come every week to remind ourselves of this story, to celebrate this story, to repent of the ways we've sinned against God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We're going to respond. The reason I ask you to do that is not because we're going to do anything special while your eyes are closed. I just want to give you a moment in a busy day, in a busy life, just to be able to talk to the Lord. Every single person enters into this room one of two ways. Either one, you are one of those people who have been set free from bondage and rescued. And if that's you, this is an opportunity to celebrate, to repent. Maybe there's been some sin in your life. You've been worshiping wrongly. You've not been worshiping Jesus this week. You've been chasing other anxieties, other pressures. And this is an opportunity to confess that to the Lord. Make your chair your altar. Make the front your altar and repent of your sin. Maybe this is a moment for you to just rejoice in the God of your salvation who sets you free when you were in bondage and slavery to sin. Maybe you've not cherished the gathering or pursued the practice of gathering with the right heart, the right motives. It's an opportunity to repent. Confess your sin, trust in Christ's sufficiency. But maybe there are some here in a room this size who you've never been set free. You're still living in exile. You're still in Persia. Sin has clouded your heart and your mind. And maybe you've been a part of religious experiences before, but you've never been set free by the blood of Jesus before. Brother, sister, friend, you can be free this morning. Repent of your sin. Just tell God, Lord, I give you my life. Forgive me for sinning against you. I give you my life. This morning, we get to respond to the gospel together. So whatever you need to do, if you want to talk to someone, I'll be down front. We'll have a prayer room out back. If you want to come pray, pray. Sing, sing. This is our opportunity to respond to the God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Father God, we love you and we thank you that we get to gather together to be reminded of your grace and your goodness to us. Lord, let it not become mundane, routine, duty. 
Let it be the delight of our hearts to gather with brothers and sisters who've been redeemed by you. I just pray for anyone in this room this morning who doesn't know you, that even now you would pull back the veil that covers their eyes, that they would see you as Savior and they would repent and believe in you and you'd save them. We thank you that we're going to get to do this for all eternity because of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.